along and actually clicking right along each week. And we're going to start in chapter five this week. And uh, I just want to encourage you, if you've never done this, every summer, it's kind of cool. Pick an actual book of the Bible, walk through it. Actually study it together with certain friends. And as you're getting... Um, you can do it all kinds of different ways. One of the ways you can do it is you can hang out without a doubt by the pool and actually have a Bible study. You can go to the beach. You can hang out at a coffee shop. Alan, you need some help or are you all right? Okay, we're good. Can you all hear me okay? There it is. Yeah, there we go. Make me feel like Barry White. Can you drop me about an octave? Just kidding. People listen to that voice better. I don't know what it is. It's either crave beef from Arby's or they actually listen to the voice. I don't know what it is when you get that lower, deeper voice. Does anybody know who Barry White is? Okay, just, you know, sometimes I'll say stuff and my, my son will say, Dad, nobody knows what you're talking about. You're old. And I'm like, I really don't feel that old, but from his perspective, I'm an old fart and I get it. And so whenever I do something like that, you can just put on a card and say, look, it made sense to you. It didn't make sense out here. And if you tell me that, it'll help me out and I'll actually do a better job next time. So grab your Bible. We're going to have fun. Um, as we started this series, one of the things that we pointed out about the book of Ephesians is this concept that the Apostle Paul, when writing to the people in Ephesus, was trying to communicate this concept of love and unity. That the church was supposed to be a place where love and unity was, was so big and so huge that when people looked at the gatherings of Christ, they would go, wow, I don't know what's going on, but I know they like each other, I know they love each other, and there's unity. One of the things we pointed out was, if you fast forward, okay, not even that long, just a generation or two ahead, you see the Apostle John referring to this same church, and he's saying, hey, I've got this thing against you in the book of Revelation. He says, you've lost your first love. You've made it about a lot of cool stuff, but you've not made it about me. And so one of the recurring themes that you see in this book in Ephesus is over and over and over again, you see the word love. Paul uses the word love in this book more than any other of his letters to the church. And so he's trying, he kind of sees what's happening. And many times you can see it's church on a certain trajectory. You see them moving in a certain direction. And great leaders and apostles and teachers will try to say, hey, let's pull things back to where they're supposed to be. And you see this over and over and over again when you look at this book to the Ephesians. And so again, keep your finger right there on Ephesians. We're going to start in the fifth chapter in a second. But before we get there, let me give you some context. How many of you ever heard of the word symposium? It's a fancy word, right? It's a $5 word. Okay, $5 people in the back said they had. Okay, so symposium. Okay, uh, I'd pull you up here, but that would kind of be awkward. But symposium is the idea of people that are educated coming together, Right? And when they come together, they talk about some stuff, and they dialogue, and they have an argument, right? And it's usually supposed to be an argument where people come out of it smarter. It actually comes from this culture. So in this culture, they would have all the time something called symposium. They're the ones that have the origin of this word. And what they would do is when they would come together, this might sound like some of our modern gatherings, when they would come together, there was always alcohol involved at the symposium. And the more alcohol flowed, seems like more ideas came out, okay? And that's the way this worked back in this culture. And somehow that had spilled over and spilled into, many scholars think, even into the modern worship. So they had the, you know, the, the temple of Artemis there, Diana. And a lot of the worship that would happen there was involved in this way. So Paul knew in the culture that he was dealing with, that he was dealing with some concepts about how they would give worth and honor to God. And in this particular chapter, he's going to address those. So that gives you the context. This is how people are worshiping, okay? They're getting loaded, they're getting a snoot full, and they're like, man, I feel spiritual now. Okay, that's what was happening. And in the midst of this, 
Paul, to this church in the fifth chapter, writes this. So put your finger there in the fifth chapter. We're going to start in verse 18. And here's what Paul says to them. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Again, 5, verse 18. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. That's a command, by the way. Be filled. He's telling me this is something you're supposed to do. Be filled with the Spirit. Verse 19. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Isn't this cool? So you've got this window, you've got this picture. And here's what Paul is essentially trying to set up and he's going to talk about. He's like, you think the way to party is this way because you've had these symposiums, you've had this other form of worship, and it's kind of shapes what you think a party looks like. And he says, I'm going to show you how to really party as a Christian. That's exactly what Paul is saying. He said, I'm going to show you what it really looks like, what it really means to be filled, what it means to have your whole life torn apart in a way that you can't even expect that's coming. So here's my subtitle for you. It's going to make some of you squirm, but you'll like it by the end. I'm going to teach you how to get loaded as a Christian. You ready? How do you get loaded as a Christian? How does this look for a believer? What's the type of party that Paul's talking about? And here's the first part of the party. He says, sing Christ's life song for a singular audience. That's the first thing that Paul's trying to bring out in verse 19. Sing his love song, Christ's life song, this kind of song for a singular audience. William Barclay, when commentating on this and just kind of giving us some ideas, said the church was a singing church. The early church liked to sing. They loved to sing. It was in them. There was this joy, this exuberance inside of them. They just couldn't help it. You ever, um, how many of you guys have seen, I know this is old, but almost everybody's seen this one because it's Disney, right? How many have seen the Seven Dwarves, right? Snow White, okay, okay. If I, if I said whistle while you were coming, you can whistle it. Right, you know this one, right? So what's the concept behind whistle while you work? Have a tune in your heart, right? It makes the work lighter. Right? How many of you like when you're working on something, you find yourself stuck in a song over and over again, you start humming it, right? And you're just humming the song, and it just kind of makes time go by faster. And this was the early church. They couldn't help it. This song was deep down inside of their spirit. Everywhere they went, they had these psalms, and they had these hymns, and they had these spiritual songs. And wherever they went, this stuff was just coming out. It was just oozing, just oozing out of them everywhere they went. You didn't have to tell them to sing. You just had to wind them up and let them go. Remember them toys? And you just let them go, right? Remember the evil Knievel? How I many of you had evil Knievel, right? And you crank that. Nobody had evil Knievel? Am I the only? You had, okay. And you crank evil Knievel up, right? And then, boom, right? And you always launch him at a brother or sister and see if you can injure him, right? That was, the whole, that was the whole point. But this is what the church was like. I mean, you started to wind them up and turn them loose. They were so full of this joy. And this joy, when they would come together to sing, took people of all these different backgrounds, Rich people, poor people, educated people, uneducated people, you know, people that were laborers, people that were slaves, people that were slave owners. I mean, and they were slammed all together in this one gathering that Jesus calls his church. And when they would come together, this joy that existed inside of them would bind them together in song. And it was intoxicating. People would see what was going on. They would go, oh my gosh, I don't know what's up with those people, but they like to party. 
They like to party. I mean, think about the birth of the church. First thing that happens when they come out and, you know, and Peter explains what the church is and people start to just have these cool moments of engagement with the Holy Spirit. What's the first thing that people of the culture said? They must be lit. They must be lit. Peter says, people, it's only like nine o'clock in the morning. We can't be lit yet. You know, that'd have to be like from the last night, but we're not that, okay? We're high on the Spirit of God. And it was messing their culture up because they hadn't seen this kind of joy. The only joy they would see is false joy. A fake joy, a joy that a drug had to bring people to. And this is a joy that's with inside. It's something deeper, speaking to one another with psalms and hymns, and, and it's just it's happening inside. I don't know if you've ever thought about the concept of worship. If you ever just sat and meditated upon it and thought about, you know, you come to church each week, hopefully, or two or three times a month or whatever it is, okay? And when you're here, you worship. You know that the root word for worship is the idea of worth, to give worth to. So the singular audience that we're talking about in this passage that Paul talking about is to give worth and honor to God. So many times we take worship and we make worship about us, what we're going to get, but not what we're going to offer. And that's what he's saying. There's this singular audience by which that we are going to have a unified voice in our offering. When I used to teach on worship, I used to teach about what was called the vertical and the horizontal components of it. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. But there's a vertical component to worship. You know, I want to sing to God. I want to glorify his name. I want him and the Holy Spirit and Jesus all to hear my voice and to go, mm, I'm right there with you, right there in your midst. That's the vertical part. And then there's this part where you're hoping to catch a glimpse of that same joy that same heart in other people as you look around. That's the horizontal part. And when that begins to happen, there is a unity that comes together in the church that no one can understand, but everyone falls in love with. And it's amazing. And it's a party. John 4, 24, if you want to flip to there for a second, says it this way. It says Jesus is hanging out with this woman at the well, and she wants to get in an argument with him about worship. People never get into arguments about worship, right? I mean, if Jesus got in an argument about worship, it's going to happen. So they're having this argument about worship, and she goes, you Jews, you say we got to worship over there in that building. And he goes, oh, yeah, well, you Samaritans, you think it's about the mountain, right? And they start on this argument, and Jesus says, I tell you, it's not about any of that stuff. And he comes down to John 4, 24, and he levels her and everybody in the church with this one verse, and he says, it's about worshiping based on spirit and truth. Spirit and truth. So let's break this down for a second so we can understand what real, genuine, unified worship that has a singular audience looks like. It looks like this. Spirit means there's a mystery to it. There's a mystery to it. There is a mystery. It's immaterial. That's what he was saying. He goes, my father is spirit, and must be worshiped in spirit and truth. So there's an immaterial dynamic to worship. If you come to worship and there's no mystery to it, you're missing out on something. Because the spirit of God moves in different ways, in different people. And as you begin to sense that spiritually, you see the mystery of his hand. There's a passion with it. You ever heard someone is spirited? Well, that young woman is very spirited. You ever heard that, right? What's it mean? It means they got some energy, right? They got some zeal, they got some pop in their step. So to worship in spirit not only means based on this mystery, but with a passion. And when I see most people in worship, I got to be honest with you, I don't see passion. I see complacency. I see I just want what I want and what I'm used to. Whatever spectrum that lies on of the contemporary, traditional, praise course, wherever it lands, 
they come unexpected of the Holy Spirit to move. And that, that's, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about something far more than that. Truth means in alignment with Scripture, in alignment with the Bible. So, in other words, the concrete component, the reasonable component. This is not just like, whoop, you're out of your mind kind of stuff, okay? This is like stuff that's concrete in the Bible. And when you look at the Bible, it describes worship. And when you put these two together, and the singular audience is to glorify the Father and to glorify the Son and to glorify the Spirit amongst us, he shows up in ways that unifies and brings the church together, and you're having a party. You're not just having church anymore. You have a party in your midst. This is a big hang-up for a lot of people. I want to read to you what was written a long time ago because this is not a new problem in the church. It's an old problem. So let me give you an old saying on this particular topic. It's out of a book that someone was writing about, about the early church and their struggle with this idea of style of worship. And in this, um, about, about the time of the Puritans and John Calvin, listen to what this author says. He says, the first book ever printed in America, talking about music, was the Bay Psalm book, which translated the psalms into language that could be sung in church or at home. Actually, more people had this book initially than Bibles in their home because they would sing. Okay, Because if they weren't literate, they knew how to sing. Gradually, hymns, what we call modern hymns today, hymns, which you got in hymnals and what we just sang with how great they are, gradually hymns were introduced, though these were initially opposed by the church to be unbiblical and overly emotional in their practice. By the early 18th century, respected hymn writers like Isaac Watts had made hymns a common part of worship. So here's what I'm trying to tell you. We in the church, in our gatherings, make worship about us. And the moment we do, we've lost what Jesus meant by truth and spirit. Because it's not about hymns, it's not about praise choruses, and it's not about contemporary. It's not about either of those. It's about a singular audience and our voices being unified together to give him glory and honor. Whether it's a hymn, you all know what a praise chorus is? That's a song that's got like seven verses and you sing it 11 daggone times, right? You just repeat it over and over again. That was like the 80s and 90s movement. And when you do that, but you do it with a heart bent on pleasing Jesus, he's there in our midst with a big grin. Whether it's this one, whether it's a chorus, or it's a contemporary song. It doesn't matter. In fact, I thought back of my entire season in worship, and it was interesting. I remember the very first time I ever heard the voice of God. And it was during a traditional prelude in a church. And God come crashing through that prelude to speak to me, to say, stop making life about you. Figure that's a recurring theme in my life too. And then I remember the first time I was um, in a praise chorus setting with a piano and one person leading on a vocal mic. And they were just singing these older praise choruses. And it was like any other time we were worshiping. I remember all of a sudden the room became heavy. I don't know if you've ever experienced that. You almost sense a cloud descend upon the room. That the spirit and heaviness and presence of God was there. And it was so overwhelming, I sat down. I had to sit down in a chair. I was like, I've got to get my breath. I'm about to pass out. Because God was overwhelming me with his love and his presence. The unity that was happening in that moment. Nothing different than the other time he just decided, I'm just going to you know, throw this at you, Larry, and see what you do with it. And he threw it at me. And I remember my wife said, you all right? I said, yeah, I thought I was going to pass out. She goes, oh, I'm so glad you didn't. You were playing basketball with those younger kids the night before. I would have thought you had a heart attack. I said, that's great. Go out in glory and wake up in hell with somebody actually giving me mouth to mouth. Not cool, right? And then I remember the third time, the very first time I started going to contemporary worship service was actually with something called Promise Keepers. I don't know if you remember that. There was a movement among men 
where they would gather together and they would come together in large stadium events and they would just try to become better dads and better husbands and, you know, and, and just try to be better men of God. And I remember it was the first time I ever felt the freedom, because you're in this massive audience, to express myself physically in worship. Very first time. And I actually raised my hands as a moment of surrender to God. And again, felt his presence in such a powerful and deep way. Now here's the reality. Not one of those was about style. Not one of those was about what kind of music it was. It was all about a singular audience receiving praise and glory, unified with other people who shared the same heart. That's what Paul is saying, and that's a party. Second thing he's saying is, fill your heart with thanksgiving in verse 20. Fill your heart with thanksgiving. The early church was a thankful church. They had learned the secret of being content in all situations with this great exuberant thankfulness. What gave them such thankfulness was they were just thankful that God had decided to save them. They're like, I can't believe he saved me. I mean, was he looking down? I mean, holy cow, I was talking to Jim Burkett. He's one of our deacons. He said, Larry, I was hanging out over in Sharptown. As soon as he said, I'm like, uh-oh. He said, I ran into some people that know you. I was like, uh-oh, worse. He's like, they knew all kinds of stuff about you. I'm like, I'm sure they did. There's only 700 people in the whole town. They know everybody, right? And he said, you were crazy. I'm like, yeah, I was crazy. He goes, did you know most of your classmates are in jail? Or, oh, Yeah, I know, okay. And he was just saying, it's a miracle that you actually made it out of there. I'm like, yes, I know. And it was this idea, when you, when you come to that and you go, why would God save me? Why would God let me do the things that he's letting me do? It gives you this deep heart of gratitude, and the church had this. They had this gracious heart that God would save them. They just couldn't believe it, that God would send his one and only son and allow him to die for them because they felt so unworthy of such a sacrifice. They got the sacrifice, and it gave them graciousness and a gracious heart. An early church pastor said it this way. He said, the early church was so filled with thanks and so dazzled by the wonder of God that they even found a way to give thanks for hell because it was the one thing that would keep them straight and narrow. In everything they learned to find a thing to go, I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful for that. This is so contrary to our Christianity as an American culture, is it not? What we've made Christianity into not intentionally, it's just part of our culture, is we made it into a consumer Christianity. Okay, tell me about your children's programs. Tell me about your teen programs. Tell me about what you offer for this and offer for this. It's like a buffet for Christians a lot of times. What are you going to do to make me and my family happy? What are you going to do to bring us back the very next week? And when we've done that, unintentionally, doesn't mean you shouldn't do things with great, you know, just um, zeal and excellence. But what it is, is we make it into this consumeristic thing. And when you do that, you diminish the quality of what Paul is saying. He says, don't let that be what attracts people. Let it be who Jesus is that attracts people. That lives are so radically changed that people go, what happened to that dude? You know, I knew what Larry was like. How did that transpire? Well, that's the power of God. And people are attracted still to change lives. They're attracted to that. And this gracious heart, let me tell you how to get a hold of it. Let me tell you how to put it at work in your life. You have to actually be thankful for what you have, not what you don't have. I grew up in a, a pretty poor family. I don't know if you grew up in a poor family, okay? But this can happen whether you're poor or rich. What happens is you have to learn this, this concept that Paul talks about in another book of contentment and content in all situations. I'll never forget the first time that Sue and I bought a home. And I remember we're buying this little teeny rancher. It's not very fancy. It's just a house. And I remember thinking... I can't believe we're going to buy a house. 
you know? I mean, we grew up in a house that we were always fixing. You guys have one of those? We grew up in a house where I had my dad had to send me underneath the house every winter with a hairdryer. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? And I'd have to actually heat up the pipes to get the pipes to go again because they were frozen. And then growing up like that and then coming out of the Navy and then just working hard and then having the opportunity, I was just so grateful. It didn't matter what that house looked like. I just couldn't believe that we owned a home. Now, I've met people that came out of the same background, and what they do is they resent everybody else for what they've got. That's not a heart of graciousness. A heart of graciousness is like, I can't believe God's allowing this to transpire in my life. And when I went to college, I'm like, I can't believe I, that's just, you know, holy cow. Some of you see my spelling. You're like, I can't believe you went to college either. I'm like, why did God let me do that, you know? And behind all this is this concept of grace, God's riches at Christ's expense that's poured into us not because we deserve it, but because God loves us and he lavishes his love upon us. And in the early church, they had this heart. Can't believe God loves me this much. I can't believe God is doing this in my life. This bore down deep inside of us can even affect our grief. Even our grief. Even when you lose someone and the pain of that is crushing you and you understand, but God will never leave me and God will never forsake me. And people die on this planet. I don't know if you've looked around, but the mortality rate's 100%. All of us are going to face that at one point. So when someone is lost, and even though we sometimes think it's unjust, there's two ways we can respond. And I've seen people do it. You can look back at God and say, I hate you for taking them. And there's people that are working through that. Or there's people that go, thanks for the years I had with them. There's this heart of thankfulness. And that God will never leave me in the midst of that. God will never leave me no matter what I'm going through. That's this heart. And in the church, they had this, and it gave them a partying atmosphere because nothing could diminish their joy. The third thing is you humble yourself before Christians, and it's spelled, yes, that way intentionally because it's Christ in other people. We humble ourselves before them. Verse 21 says, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Notice again the theme here, out of reverence for him, this singular audience. The early church knew how to honor one another. They had a love for one another because they understood something that we desperately need today. They had that lens that we talked about at the very beginning of this this message series. If you missed that, we talked about this idea that when we have Jesus' lens for people and we put it over people and we dial it in and we focus that lens, all we are able to see once we know that person's a Christian is Christ in them. I just see Jesus in them. When you start to see Jesus in other people, it changes your perspective of the person, which means it doesn't matter how old they are. It doesn't matter how young they are. It doesn't matter what race they are. It doesn't matter what their economic background is. It doesn't matter what their education is. It doesn't, doesn't matter if they grew up Catholic, Baptist, Methodist, blah, 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 whatever. Put, fill in the blank. You, all you see is Christ. And when you begin to see this lens over people and you no longer see origin, race, money, economics, Oh my goodness, it brings a unity together as a party. The Christian church was like that. They didn't see these things. All of these people with these diverse backgrounds gathering together in one place to glorify Jesus. And they would humble themselves before each other. Because here's the reality. Christ in someone else means that Christ might speak something to you. It may be something you want to hear. It may be something you're not ready to hear. But when it happens, you humble yourself when you hear Christ's voice in another person. 
So when you, I've shared this with some of you guys from Grace, but I'll share it with some of you who haven't heard this. When Susan and I were trying to figure out what's next, God, you know, we stepped down from this ministry appointment. We've got no home. You know, we were, had a great church family, great church home. We stepped out of there. Like, now what do you want? And, and some of you have been there when you're looking for a new job, a new position, and, and we're looking for a new calling. And I remember one of the coolest things that came across our doorstep um, was this position for Bermuda for an executive pastor of worship and family ministry. I'm like, I can do this in my sleep. This is in Bermuda. And I'm thinking, oh, man, this is looking good. Now, before this happened, I told my son, because we'd been in prayer together as a family, I said, I think that God's calling us here on the shore to really help revitalize some of these churches that are dying. Because right now, over 4,000 churches in the United States close every year. That's a reality in our culture and our country of all denominations, all backgrounds. And I just felt this burden to do something about that, right? And so I'd explain this to my son, and we prayed over it together. I explained it to my wife. We prayed over it to my daughter. We all prayed over it together. And then this comes across, and they're like, hey, would you actually put in your application for this place? I'm like, I'm feeling called to Bermuda. I don't know about you, but that's sounding pretty good. And uh, my son, and the Holy Spirit rose up in him. And this is why Christ in one another is how this will humble you. He looked at me and said, Dad, didn't you say that, that Christ called you? to go to a church that was dying? Because that church does not look like it's dying. It looks pretty lively. And I'm like, thanks for crushing my dreams, Seth. Way to go, buddy. You know, but here's what I was seeing in him. I'm seeing Christ's voice through the Holy Spirit come out in my son, 14 years old at that time. And I had to humble myself before Christ's voice. This not only happens in people of youth, it happens with anyone who's a believer that gets a hold of the Spirit of God and it begins to move inside of them. And it happens in funny ways, sometimes humorous, and sometimes really difficult ways. I was on my way to um, drop Brittany off to school one morning, and I'll never forget this. It tickled me to no end. She said, we just lost a cat. I don't know. You know how family are. Some people in the family love animals and some of us eat them. And so it's just kind of different, you know, and I'm like, I'm one of the ones that eats them, you know. So, but Brittany's asking me one morning, she's like, Dad, do animals go to heaven? And, you know, being a pastor and having all that daggone education, which messes you up sometimes, I went, well, you know, Brittany, the, the word's really out. We really don't know. We know that, you know, God breathed into man. He became a living soul. We know he also breathes into animals and he gives them the spirit of life, you know. But they don't have a soul. That has to, I'm going through all this theological mess. They don't have a soul that has to be saved. And she's listening very patiently. And then all of a sudden, from the side, she, she goes, Dad. I'm like, yep. She goes, when Jesus comes back, he comes back on a white horse. I said, yep, that's right, baby. He goes, well, obviously there's animals in heaven then, aren't there? And again, I had to humble myself before the Spirit of God and say, okay, you know, I don't know how it all works, baby, but you got it right. And, and that's what happens. And you've got to be ready for this. I'll never forget one time, uh, Jack, if you guys have not seen Jack, his testimony is on our website. And Jack's been a longstanding member here. And Jack one time uh, was in the back and he was having difficulty with some of the music. It was actually hurting his ears. And it wasn't the style of the music. And how I knew that is because I knew Jack's heart. I knew this guy's heart. And so some of our leaders said, well, it's just because he doesn't like the style of music. I said, no, 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 I know this guy's heart. You need to go ask him what's going on. And so we approached him, and he said, he goes, it wasn't that way like a couple weeks ago, but all of a sudden things just got really, really, it's, it's hard. I mean, it's actually hurting my ears. And Brent Wilhelm, who's one of the guys back there with Alan, our great tech team that works every week to try to make our technical service great, started looking into it. Brent comes in, he's such a geek, I love that guy, and he brings in like this audio meter and he puts it on this side of the church and he puts it on this side of the church and he says, oh my goodness. He says 10 decibels louder on that side than this side. And it's in a specific frequency range. By the way, 
at Jack's age that would pierce his canal. Ear-piercing, painful. And he brought the thing down. We found there's something broken in the speaker, and we fixed it. The voice of God, when you humble yourself before other people, and you listen, teaches you. It admonishes you. It moves you forward. And it doesn't matter what their age is, and it doesn't matter how long they've been a believer. If they've got the Holy Spirit, you've got to learn to listen to God's voice in that person. And that brings unity to the church, and it makes it a party. It makes it a party. Because I can see Jack back there, and he's, he's ready to go. I'm telling you, in Jack's way. Here's the reality. Here's one last thought I want to give you about this concept. Your focus really does determine the reality of your life. Your focus determines your reality. If you decide to focus on the things you don't like, the things you do want, the way things should be done, as opposed to what God's doing, it will focus your reality. It will make you a miserable, cantankerous curmudgeon. Anybody know what that one is? Okay. Yeah, curmudgeon. Yeah. You can look that one up. That's a fun word to look up. Or I can focus on the things that God is doing in my life, in the lives of people around me, in my kids' lives, in my work. And when that happens, you're so full of joy. Nothing can pierce it. You walk around with this indestructible shield called the Holy Spirit. And nothing can pierce your joy. No sorrow, no pain. Even death has no victory and dent 